0: Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today our guests are John Rainey, who is co-executive producer with Elaine Freeman of a project called South Carolinians in World War II. Jeff Wilkinson of the state newspaper, he's a reporter there for the state, does the interviewing of veterans of what many call the greatest generation. More than 184,000 individuals in South Carolina participated in uniform in the war not to mention the folks at the home front. We'll talk about this project and some real South Carolina heroes, but first, your NPR news break. With me in the studio today are Jeff Wilkinson, who's a reporter for the state newspaper, and John Rainey, who is the co-executive producer of a program called The Vanishing Generation, which is aired by South Carolina ETV, and it's capturing the stories of World War II veterans. So first of all, gentlemen, welcome to the journal.
1: Thank you. It's nice to be here.
0: And um, John, why don't you tell us a little bit about the history of this program? Because here we are in 2011, but the, the story of The Vanishing Generation goes back a while, does it not?
1: It, it does, Walter. Um, Elaine Freeman, who is the Co-executive producer with me of *The Vanishing Generation*, and I, um, following a Burke Green Board meeting, uh, went out into the uh, Oak Alley, which is a lovely place to do some talking and thinking. And I told Elaine, I said, "I've just read uh, *The Greatest Generation*, and I believe it's incumbent upon us to start recording those South Carolinians who were part of the Greatest Generation." And we need to move quickly. Well, 11 years go by, and you can see it depends on the definition of the word quickly. Um, Elaine agreed, and so we actually got the project underway uh, in 1999 and 2000. Um, it We went into uh, a period where I was diverted uh, voluntarily and involuntarily uh, from the project, um, At the time, I was chairman of Santee Cooper, and then Governor Hodges and I had a dust-up that ended up in the Supreme Court. And I sort of went into the political and other wilderness for a while and then got involved with Governor Sanford, which turned out to be an interesting adventure and productive, I might say. So it wasn't until really about two or three years ago, maybe two years, uh, Jeff? Yeah, that's right,
2: two that years
1: That we really got back onto this. Seriously, during the meantime, ETV had done some limited production of, of what we had undertaken, and there was actually um, something done on, on ETV back uh, about 2001. I know the initial filming we did... Uh, There was a fellow named Stan Marshall who was in that. Stan, whom I did not know had such an exemplary war record, although I knew him well. He was married to a cousin of mine up in Anderson County, was the P.T. boat commander who picked up uh, President Kennedy in the Solomons. And we did him. Uh, we did John Hammond Moore, historian in Columbia, who was on the rocket ship in the South Pacific, and a, and a few others. And then the project just shut down. It, it went into the, somebody hit the pause button, I guess. But then we got going again. Uh, we got uh, Jeff on board. We got the state newspaper on board. We got some funding. Elaine and I started focusing again in earnest. And Our first work was uh, shown uh, on Veterans Day 2010 and again on Pearl Harbor Day 2010, and it was entitled A Time to Fight, and it was the first hour of what we now envision as a multi-hour production which we will be showing over uh, the course of the next uh, year or so. All
0: right. Thank you, John. And Jeff, talk about your involvement and also the involvement of the state newspaper in this project.
2: Well, uh, leading up to uh, the Honor Flight Program, I think you may have heard heard of that. That's where uh, a group here in town flies World War II veterans to Washington, D.C. for free to see their monument. They wanted a little publicity going into that. So I wrote a series of 13 profiles of World War II veterans that the state newspaper ran on the front page. And John saw them, called me up and said, uh, do you want to do this project? And I said, absolutely. Uh, So uh, we jumped in and started doing interviews, and we've done 64 now.
0: 64. And there were, what, 184,000 plus individuals from South Carolina who served in uniform in one capacity or the other, not counting the folks who, for example, worked in defense industries. And of course, we had people from South Carolina who were involved in the conflict who were not natives at the time, but who now live here, Holocaust survivors. Um, There was a World War II veteran who actually had been in the Netherlands army in what we now call Indonesia. And taken as prisoners of war when the Dutch East Indies fell to the to the Japanese, so it it was literally a worldwide conflict. And you you know South Carolinians were involved from the get go. They were at Pearl Harbor. So how did you go about selecting your veterans or finding them? Did you put out? I know Jeff, there were some stories in the paper, but did people contact you or did you start contacting folks? How did this how did this go?
2: A little of both. I mean we had the honor flight list so we had had a list John had some suggestions other people at ETV had suggestions and I wrote a couple of stories for the newspaper and we just started getting emails and we got a lot of emails we got a database
0: of over 250 veterans mm-hmm. and just talking to people on the street and and this really is a very time sensitive project, because I know nationally, it's something like 1,500 veterans of World War II die every single day. In fact, you've lost some folks that you interviewed. Yeah, we've had four. We've had four pass away since we've interviewed them. Span Watson, Mm -hmm. he was a uh, Tuskegee
2: Airman. Gus Wright, who was taken prisoner on Corregidor and spent the whole war in prison. Mm -hmm. Claude Walker, I think. Claude Walker, five brothers Mm -hmm. who
0: all served and came back. Mm -hmm. And William Dawson, Mm-hmm. The fact that they are passing away every day, even he, even here in South Carolina, because if you look at the obituaries in the newspaper and you see, a lot of times they will have the photograph of the young man in, and you can tell from the the uniform, at least I can, that they are they war two, war two vets. This is a multi year project, and I viewed your first one, a time to fight, fascinating footage. But I'm sure you've got a lot more footage than what you're actually airing, is there going to be an archive where these are going to become a part of, of the record, where it's, it's at the Caroliniana or the State Historical Society? Is there some place where all of these interviews, because you're you obviously not using every everything. You must have something that we call an outtake. We do interviews anywhere from an hour and a half to three hours, so we have a ton of stuff.
2: Hmm. Uh, we're currently building a website where we're going to put uh, uh, all of these stories. Okay. Uh, it'll be linked to the state.com. It'll be linked to the ETV website. In addition, we're doing social media. We have a Facebook page, mm-hmm. which John loves.
1: <laughs> I'm trying to understand.
2: <laughs> we're posting things almost every day, photographs, uh, interviews, obituaries, newspaper stories. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to get this out as, uh, as many levels as we possibly can.
0: Well, that, that was one thing that I was fascinated with is that a lot of what the people call B-roll, the back in between the interviews, you use the photographs that obviously were supplied by these, these folks.
2: Oh, yeah. And they're always in a, a little box somewhere, and they hadn't pulled them out in 30 years. And we ask them where it is, and they pull it out, and it's just fascinating. And it's important to get that stuff, too, because once they pass away, that stuff has a, a way of evaporating
0: for somebody who's, who's worked with historical records and historical organizations for all my adult life, it is really sad, someone will doubt they'll have the, the letters or photographs, and the children or grandchildren or whoever inherits, eh, what's this old stuff?" And it goes on on the street. There's a fellow who literally does dumpster diving for the Caroliniana, and about once a week he comes up with incredible collections of photographs or letters, um, sometimes going back to the 19th century, that people move in, they just don't know, and it's gone. And the Historical Society in Charleston actually has a growing collection of veterans' letters, not just World War II, but any South Carolina who served in uniform, they want their collection. And, and John, as a Vietnam vet, you'd be interested to know that their Vietnam veteran collection of letters is growing by leaps and bounds. So uh, it's an important part of sharing history. And a veteran you couldn't interview, but this is going back to the letters that just show up Jim Hammond, who used to be your colleague at, at the state, Jeff, mm-hmm. after his father died, his mother showed him letters that her, he would have been a member of the Eighth Air Force. And Jim wrote a book. Tom's War. Tom's War. You, you interviewed these, these folks, and I would say almost half of them that I remember, well, I'd never been out of South Carolina before. And the next thing you know, they are in the South Pacific or they are in, in North Africa. And when they saw that, the world, they came back, and John, as you well know and as you've talked about, they helped change South Carolina.
1: That's right. They saw, they saw there was another world that actually South Carolina was not the epicenter of the universe. That was a big surprise to a lot of people.
0: You mean it's not? Well, (laughs) I
3: I am just 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 about to say that (laughs) some folks still
1: think it is, but I, I think that's being hopefully disabused day by day.
0: Well, it may not be the epicenter, but it is very easy to link South Carolina with the outside world. It is not as isolated a place as some folks seem to think it is. The South Carolina connections with American and world history are just absolutely incredible. So anyway, Jeff, you've been working on the project. Let's talk about a couple of stories that really grabbed you, you let's share. My, my hero, and you've used him in this, and among heroes, is Moffat Boris.
2: Oh yeah, Moffat.
0: Moffat is all over the place in the war. He started in North Africa. He went to Sicily, he fought in Italy.
2: He jumped in Market Garden. He uh, loved his job. He loved being in the, in the 82nd Airborne. And his composite character was in the movie A Bridge Too Far. If you saw Robert Redford, what Robert Redford did in that movie, Moffat did, along with a couple a couple of other people, I think. They put them together and made it a... Uh, a composite character, but he's absolutely fascinating and wonderful to
0: talk to. Well, another South Carolina who was at the bridge at Remargan was the late Judge John Grimble. That's right. He was the first officer across cross the bridge. So, I mean, here you've got two South Carolina boys involved in one of the more significant actions of, of the war to keep that bridge open so they could cross the Rhine.
1: In that composition of the character that Robert Redford played, which included Moffat Burris, Moffat's spe- specific part there was he was the officer that crawled on the British tank and held the submachine gun to the head of Lord Carrington, the Queen's cousin, and told him he either would advance his British tanks in relief of the American airborne. Oh, he was going to kill him. It turned out that that he didn't know at the time that Lord Carrington, who he was, or he was a cousin of the queen, he later became supreme commander of NATO. So so things can be a real near thing.
2: (laughs) We went back with Moffat uh, to Holland uh, a year and a half ago and watched him jump out of an airplane at 90. Mm -hmm. He was decorated by the Queen of Holland. And he met
0: that gentleman for the first time since the war on stage when he received this declaration. Lord
1: Carrington. Right. Right.
0: Well, and of course, he was in, in Sicily, and he had a run-in with the Brits there, too. They thought he was a German spy. And the Brits said, well, if you just said you were a Yank to begin with, we would have understood. And he said, I'm not a Yank. I'm a rebel. Right. <laughs> just
1: uh... Walter, let me tell you an interesting story that we didn't cover because of this hiatus, this long pause button that was hit from 1999 through 2009. Mm-hmm. That's when we got started, wasn't yep. it? It was 10 years. For years, I was general counsel to the Ben Arnold Company, mm-hmm. and I worked with a fellow down there named Mike Chester, and Mike Chester was um, the special assistant to Norman Arnold, who was president of the Ben Arnold Company. Never knew until the end of Mike's life of his war record. He never mentioned it. Turned out, Mike told me it at the end, and it was very close to the end of his life. He had four combat jumps, which is unusual. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had four stars on his um, his wings.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And... There's a picture of him in the book The Longest Day by Cornelius Ryan, and it shows him sitting in the door of a C-47. And following his funeral, the general, retired general officer, Patton Adams, who was a former mayor of Columbia and a fellow... Vietnam veteran, and I was sitting there. And, and
0: Patton was also the civilian aide to the Secretary of the Army at that, the time.
1: Where... That's exactly right, and we worked together. In fact, he was the chairman of the uh, effort to build the Vietnam Monument. Mm-hmm. So, so so Patton and I were sitting there listening to this retired general, and he he said, Mike Chester was the first American into Normandy. Mm-hmm. And that tied in with what Mike had told me about leading the Pathfinder unit, mm-hmm. and where so many of the paratroopers were drowned. They dropped in the wrong places. They dropped right on top of the German units. He said, we, dro- we hit exactly where we were supposed to hit. We took out our flares. We took out our uh, uh, cloth markers. We marked the LZ, and we didn't fire a shot all day. Mm-hmm. And so Cornelius Ryan just gave a big yawn and moved on. <laughs>
0: Well, and of course, among the people who did go in gliders, the late Senator Strom Thurmond. That's right. Uh, but most people know his World War II stories. Jeff, let's get, let's get back to, to Moffat Boris, because one of the other stories that he has told here on the journal, and it's been one, his interview has been one of the most requested that we have, we call him evergreens, well, his has been evergreen. And he talks about liberating a concentration camp in Europe. And what is interesting, I was mentioning this story at a dinner party the other night, and a Jewish couple said, you do know that Moffat Burris is on a wall of honor for his liberation of that concentration camp. And no, I did not know that. And this woman said, uh, we in the Jewish community remember and honor and will always honor him for what he did.
1: We well, you know, down here at the Veterans Park, there's a a Holocaust memorial um, that was um, erected several years ago. And on the back of it is a list of Americans who were part of the Liberation Army that went in there. I don't know whether Moffitt's name is on there or not. I know my uncle from the little hamlet of Sharon, South Carolina, a graduate of Sidzel.
0: Up in York County.
1: Up in York County. Went in with one of the armored divisions and was one of the liberators of one of the camps, and I got his name on there. But it would be interesting to see if Moffat's name, in fact, I think I need to ride by there because if it's not, we need to get it on there.
0: That may very well be what, what was being...
1: That may be where the Wall of Honor is. the Wall of Honor That must is. be
0: it. Yeah, Moffat played a big role in
2: Italy as well. He was an airborne uh, soldier, paratrooper. But at Anzio, they went in by boat so he also made uh, an amphibious assault. The Germans
0: had just reinforced the 5th Army front lines, and they brought troops down from the north to contend with the Anzio Beachhead. Uh, We had a British division, an American division, and uh, our paratroopers that were on the beachhead, the Anzio Beachhead. Artillery fire to the individual soldier is probably the most devastating thing that he faces. It's just this huge burst, it hits the ground, and shrapnel just flies everywhere. And if you are anywhere within a radius of a hundred feet or more, you're liable to get ripped with a piece of shrapnel.
2: That's in the second hour of our program, which is called A New Front. And it will air May 26th at 9 p.m. on ETV and again on May 30th at 10 p.m. And that covers the uh, period from Italy through D-Day. And like I said, Moffat, he's
0: really all through our program. I'm looking forward to that. I haven't seen the rushes of that, but I did go back and review A Time to Fight. And 184,000 people, young, mostly young men, but not, they weren't the only folks involved in the war. And I'm glad to see that in this next piece that you're going to involve Folks in the defense industry, you've got some, some women who worked in the shipyard. Two sisters from West
2: Columbia, Alice Ray and Julia Webb, that's their married names, and a third sister worked in Wilmington. But Julia and Alice both uh, went to the Charleston Navy Yard, got jobs. Alice likes to say, I wasn't Rosie the Riveter, I was Alice the Welder.
4: <laughs> I wasn't Rosie the Riveter. I was Alice the welder. The men was all going to service and they needed women and they started training women in the Navy Yard. We decided we'd go down and apply and they took us right away. We had a change of salary at that time, $5.50 an hour compared to $10 a week. So it was quite a help in the household. Mr. Bryce Bates was the driver of a van and he had nine people in that van. Alice and myself was the only two women in that station wagon, or men. And we drove the 78 miles to Charleston. It was a site of work, 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 because they were needing these ships as fast as they could be built. We went in this great big double gate, and on one side would be the welding shop, the other ship for the shop, the electrician shop, Every morning we went to the stand and picked up our rods, our welding rods, in a can and then we'd go on the job and weld. We were just 90 pounds each and we were the smallest and they had close quarters to put the ladies in to do the welding because the men couldn't get in there and do it. They used my sister and I to get in there together. I would tack weld and she would finish welding and we'd be done and out of it in just a few minutes. There was areas that you wasn't too safe really. When you weld on galvanized, not the regular metal, not the regular steel, it's the galvanized and it threw off the gas and that's what made you sick. Well it just made you definitely and nauseated and they made you drink milk to cataract it. I had a couple of injuries during that time, but it was nothing elaborate, nothing to slow me up. I was young and I could take it. And it was just the fact that we were doing things that other people could not do. Big men could not get in there and do what they needed done. It was hard work, but by the grace of God, he gave me strength to to do the work and do it well.
0: There are other stories out there, folks who were involved with the Red Cross, or there was a, a nurse, Juanita Redmond from Swansea, who was the heroine of Corregidor. I mean, there are just stories out there. In fact, there was a book written and published in the Wharf, which was, you know, they didn't publish a lot of books because they, they want to save paper, but Redmond's story was, was published. I don't know if she, I don't think she's still living, but it wasn't just the guys in the plains. I mean, the, the role of women in the in the war and on the home front changed a lot of things.
1: Don't forget the nurses that were in the, you know, in the field hospitals and the evac hospitals and were very near the front Mm -hmm. in in both the Pacific and in Europe.
2: And we do have a a, a segment in this uh, upcoming hour called Doctors and Nurses. Mm -hmm.
0: Dr. Edmund Taylor, we interviewed him from here in town. Mm -hmm. Dr. Edmund Taylor was on the most recent honor flight and just... He's still talking about the experience.
2: And that's another example of, of Veterans Finding Us. He was sitting at, at the Veterans Day Parade in Columbia because he was being—all all the Honor Flight guys were out there. I think it was this past one. And Bill Dukes, who started Honor Flight, said, you need to go talk to him, Jeff. And I went over and chatted with him and his wife uh, for a little bit. And the next thing you know, he's, uh, he's in the film and, and has a fascinating story. Mm-hmm.
0: I was just thinking of a husband and wife we interviewed here on the show, Lucas and Frances Dargan from over in Darlington. And we did them as a team, talking about his going off and her life on, on the home front in rural South Carolina. Most of South Carolina really was country. Our cities were just small towns compared to everywhere else. And it was a very different world. Jeff, do you have a favorite... Obviously, sometimes people stand out a story that just really grabbed you, maybe something you, you had never heard of before. Well, there's one guy. His name is Lou Fowler. He was a waist gunner
2: on a B-27. He was blown out of his plane over, um, over Yugoslavia, I think. He had a harrowing <laughs> ascent to the ground. He only had one clip on his parachute. He only had one arm to pull the cord with.
5: And as I was falling, I saw that my plane that was on fire explode, explode in midair. And I fell about 2,000 feet before I finally managed to bang my fist with my left hand. I banged my fist that was holding the ripcord. And I finally got the ripcord pulled and the parachute opened. I was above 10,000 and no oxygen was up there so I I was getting woozy and I was passing out. But right before I passed out, right before I passed out, I heard this voice, fear not for I am with you. Fear not for I am with you because I knew that my God was with me at that time and that gave me courage. And then I passed out.
2: He was rescued by Yugoslavian partisans. Then he was captured by the Nazis.
5: German patrol picked us up and captured me and one of the others. The other three, other four, they executed on the spot.
2: And ended up in a boxcar outside of Auschwitz. That's in this upcoming hour as well. And not only Did Lou have an amazing story, but he's just an amazing man. He's so positive and so happy that he survived his ordeal and loves to visit with children. He loves to speak to groups, and he's just an engaging, engaging man, and and I just love being out, hanging out with him. Where is Lou's hometown? Columbia. Oh, okay. As a matter of fact, he lives about
0: three blocks from me, and I didn't even know it until the other day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, as you mentioned, there are really many other stories like that. And you've you've, you've mentioned a couple. Another would be Odell Vaughn, who lost his legs saving fellow soldiers.
2: Yep, there was a soldier who uh, got hit in a minefield. And Odell was a staff sergeant, and he felt like it was his duty to go rescue this guy. And he knew he was in a minefield.
3: We were about uh, nine kilometers south of uh, Pisa. A man, a civilian, who was running to get out of the firing area let it be known to me that there was a soldier down in a minefield. We had no testing equipment at all to test the ground as we went in, and we had no minesweeper. Since I was the first sergeant, it, it led me to be the one to make the trip to, to go take care of him, but I asked for a volunteer, and. Every person volunteered. We could hear the man screaming for help, and we had no idea how how badly he was hurt. So with the thought in my mind that this man could not live long if he was seriously wounded uh, because of loss of blood. Uh, So the more he screamed, the faster I moved and we were dodging mines going in. My thoughts were not on mines as much as it was on a man up there screaming in front of me somewhere. So as a result of it, I stepped on the mine and uh, blew me up in the air a good bit and back down uh, in a sitting position. I looked down and one leg was gone and the other one was mangled pretty badly. There was so much bleeding that We had to do something quick, so that's when my man that was with me helped me put tourniquets on both legs from my belts. I told him to get the other man out first because he was maybe in worse condition than I was and he didn't have the privilege of having tourniquets for his legs. I prayed to the Lord at one moment that I died, and in the next moment I prayed that I could live to see my wife and a son I'd never seen. And I don't recall having thought of anything else. Mm.
0: Incredible stories, and I'm sure these are just several of many. And one of the things that permeates the interviews that that I have seen is starting with the news at Pearl Harbor, because some some young men were already in, in, in uniform before war, but those who just, when they found out about Pearl Harbor and talking about where they were when Pearl Harbor came and the attitude of country's in trouble and here we go. There was no question as to what these young men were going to do. And by the way, that's regardless of, of race or class or, you know, you, you, you've interviewed some folks, sharecroppers, children, small town merchants. When the time came, they all raised their hand and said, I'll go.
1: Well, it's, it's interesting. Um, that was a generation where the privileged went toward the sound of the guns. Mm
0: -hmm. Instead of in our generation.
1: Well, so many of the privileged uh, made every effort, many successfully, to avoid the sound of the guns. Mm -hmm.
2: You talked to a lot of these veterans and they say it was obvious that everybody who was able-bodied was going to have to go anyway. So they stepped up, many of them, to pick their branch of service. Uh, Moffat wanted to be in the Airborne. You should tell the story of your friend that went to Furman.
1: Oh, Mac Walters. Johnny McIver Walters. Okay. Was born on a tenant farm in Darlington County. His father moved from tenant farm to tenant farm. Mac, as he has been called all of his 90 or 91 years, still living in Greenville. He lives at Furman now. Uh, with his wife, Donna. Mack went to Greenville with $3 and change in his pocket. And uh, Dr. Bennett Gere, who was then the president of Furman, got him into Furman. I- I'm not sure of the details, but Mac somehow got into Furman. There he became good friends of Bennett E. Gere, Jr., who later became his law partner and my law partner. But Mac went in in 1941, Wanted to be a pilot, but couldn't because of his eyesight. Became a navigator on either a B-17 or B-24 out of Italy. Flew any number of combat missions. Came back. Went to the University of Michigan Law School. Uh, Went to work for uh, Texaco. And fast forward now to Richard Nixon's first election. And John Mitchell was going to be the attorney general. They were looking for people from the South to be in the administration. John Mitchell and Mac Walters had known each other when Mac was in the Tax Department of Texaco in New York, and so Attorney General Mitchell called and asked Mac if he would consider joining the administration. I happened to be back from Vietnam and in. Law School in uh, Georgetown at the time when Mac came to Washington. this would have been 68. This story is interesting to me because Mac Walters exemplified those who made it through the Great Depression, the really hard way, who answered the call in World War II, who came back, completed their education, and then went on to be significant people, in American history, both in the public and the private sector. Mack Walters is the exemplar of integrity. If you were to look in the dictionary for the word integrity, it'd say, see Mack Walters. Mack then went as assistant attorney general of the tax division to commission of internal revenue in the second Nixon administration. It was during that time, and we have all this in the interview, Yep. Mac got a call from the White House. It was either from Ehrlichman or Haldeman or both. I don't remember. And they wanted somebody's tax returns for political purposes. Mac Walters said no.
2: In pretty emphatic terms.
1: Yeah. In fact, the story, when we have this in the tape, it's certainly in the outtake, but we still have it, right? We didn't clean it up. George Shultz, who was then the secretary of the treasury to whom the Commission of Internal Revenue reports, and Mac Walters were in the same room. In fact, I think Mac says on, in the interview that George Shultz was in his bathroom on the phone and listening in, and Mac told them in no uncertain terms they were not getting anybody's tax returns as long as he was Commission of Internal Revenue and that they could do certain things with the job and with themselves. in no uncertain terms. Is that about right? That's correct. Okay. So then after uh, Nixon left office and the Democrats took over Congress, Mack was called before a House committee investigating various things in the Nixon administration. And Mack told his story. And it's a beautiful story. It's about integrity in public office. It's a word you don't hear much about anymore. You know, in Lack of integrity is the first definition of corruption. Mm-hmm. In any event, Mack then went on and he headed up the Washington office of the very fine Richmond firm of Hunt and Williams. And um, then he, um, he came back to, to Greenville and practiced law and then uh, ended up his career with Colonial Investment Company in Spartanburg. But, but Mack has never stopped working. In fact, two years ago, I was producing an op-ed on Secretary Geithner, who was about to be confirmed as Secretary of the Treasury. And I called Mac, and I said, Mac, would you co-author this with me? And he said, I certainly will. But I wanted Mac on that op-ed. If there was ever a man of unimpeachable character, coming out of the Depression, fighting the good war, coming back and making great contributions in the civilian sector for all of his life was Mike Walters.
0: He, like other World War II veterans, is that they had invested in their country, but their country was willing to invest in them and invest in the future.
3: That's
1: right,
0: through for the GI Bill. Through the GI Bill. Exactly.
1: But he, and he w- was able, because of the GI Bill, to go to that very fine law school still was, today, just, the University
0: of Michigan. Yeah. Jeff, looked like you were getting ready to chime in on something.
2: It's just an image that sticks in my head. When we go into these neighborhoods, you know, we got our GPS and we have MapQuest. We're trying to find their houses. Almost invariably, there'll be an American flag in the front yard. Okay. And that's how I know where the house is. And not one that you stick on your door, right. a pole
0: mm-hmm. with an American flag on it. Jeff, I know you're you are a good interviewer and Sometimes older folks like to, to tell their stories, but some of these, I can tell from looking at the interview, at least it seems to me, they really have to be coaxed that they, they are modest about what they did. They did their duty by their country. You really kind of have to pull the stories out of them. Mm, they have to, some of them we have to talk into, uh, into sitting down with us.
2: Uh, a lot of times it's the family members that, that urge them to tell their stories. And I think a lot of these guys realize that they are in the sunset of their lives. And we explained to them that, you know, it's not about you. It's about the experience of the soldiers. And so it's important if kids are going to learn what it was like and what that sacrifice was that you share your story. And, and they do. They, they'll finally come around. You know, there are some places they won't go that they don't want to go. But, um, but when you put it that way, they'll open up and they'll, and they'll tell their stories.
0: Well, there was that, that one um, young Marine in, who was in Hawaii just before Pearl Harbor who, was on, who had leave on December the 6th. And he talked kind of—he said, you know, we do what Marines do when they go on leave. And then the next morning— all hell broke loose, and he had one of those horrific stories of being, somehow ending up helping to trying to pull folks out of the harbor. Yeah, this Mr. Mills, and uh, this is funny.
2: I called him up. I said, we're on our way to interview you, Mr. Mills. How are you? He goes, I feel like a newborn baby. I got no hair. I got no teeth, and I just wet my pants.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the circle of life. <laughs> I love that. Well, you know, and there was a great photograph that had been taken on December the 6th, he and a buddy. In a booth. Yeah, in a booth there in Honolulu. Mm -hmm. He was in the first hour. uh, All the Pearl Harbor
2: stuff is in the first hour. The second hour covers Italy. uh, The build-up, doctors and nurses, Charleston Navy Yard, and D-Day. And even though we're we're referring to the project as the vanishing generation, Mm -hmm. the film, to avoid confusion with, with the first film that was out is called South Carolinians in World War II. And then the first one is A Time to Fight. The second one is A New Front.
0: Okay. And so it's not to confuse you folks. When we were referring to the folk, the people at Pearl Harbor, that was in A Time to Fight. And the new one, as you mentioned, uh, Jeff, will be called The New Front? A New Front. A, a New Front. So when we talk, we talk about D-Day, we're, we're really talking about things that are still to come. That's right. Have you thought about how you can break down the next two? Yes, or three. <laughs> or three, or
2: three. You know, what's really hard is we keep doing interviews. And so uh, I interviewed this woman named Pat Kirby just the other day. She was a 16-year-old girl at Pearl Harbor. And I'm like... I wish we would have got her a year ago. She could have been in the first segment. So we keep getting more and more and more and more interviews. It drives the editor crazy, but, but,
3: but no, those we're, going be... to
2: take, we're going to take it from uh, D-Day through uh, the crossing of the Rhine and, and the liberation of, of the concentration camps, and then we head for the Pacific. Okay. Now, whether Pacific will be one hour or two hours, it just depends on where we are w- when we get there.
1: We'll pick up Max Wood then, won't we?
2: Yeah, Max.
1: We had a great interview in Camden, my friend and neighbor of mine, Max Wood. He's 86 years old, and I, I heard from a friend of ours that, you know, Max uh, was in the Pacific in pretty heavy combat, uh, and he only started talking about it last Christmas and telling his grandchildren something about it, so... In the late spring, I saw Max at a party, and I said, "Max, this is a project that I'm working on, and, and I'm wondering if you'd be willing to tell your story." And he said he would. When did we sit with Max for three hours or whatever it was? And he even sang to us. Didn't even he? sang to us. It was it in the fall or the summer? Had, it couldn't have been in the summer. It must okay, have been.
0: Okay. What what, did, what was he singing to you, John?
2: What in the world was he? What song saying? was that? We got it. You'll have to wait till you see the. the you have to wait till you see the segment. <laughs> oh, now I got to put the song in, right? You got to put the song
1: in, but but Max tells an inc- incredible story uh, about the South Pacific. You know, so many of us believe that the, that there were nothing but Marines in the South Pacific. Uh, there were a great number of Army units in the South Pacific, um, and Ma- Max was in one of the Army divisions there. But uh, he tells a great story. He's a great storyteller. And once once he got cranked up, he would say, now, are you sure you want me to tell it like it really was? And I said, Max, tell it like it really was. And so he would in no uncertain terms.
2: We'll have to do a little editing on
1: that. A little editing, but we're going to keep the raw stuff, the really raw stuff.
2: <laughs> well, and see, the, the, like I said, it'll be on the website, all these outtakes. Yeah. Eventually, are going to be on our website, yeah, yeah. SCN World War II. Because you
1: don't want to miss the color. In telling of these stories, because well, I mean, some of them are really colorful.
0: Well, but see that—that's to me. That was the joy of watching this, because these are real people. Sometimes when it's on the in, on, on the printed page, the personalities don't necessarily come across. But Jeff, you're you're not on camera, but you're obviously a great interviewer. They are really telling their stories, and they're doing it in in, in such a way that, you know. I feel like I'm sitting on the back porch with them, and we're just talking. Um, Or they're talking, and I'm listening. I got the best job in the world. I just sit there, and I smile, and I listen, and it all comes out for some reason. Well, you know, this is clearly a multi-year project. I mean, how how long are y'all going to keep going at this? That's John's department.
1: I, I told him not to worry about the funding.
0: And... John, before we sat down, I mentioned that uh, I've been working also with, with several Vietnam veterans groups who have been putting together their stories. And, and we're in fact going to, to do a journal on, on, on both of them, uh, one completed and one not yet completed. So the Vietnam veterans are beginning to, to tell their stories, but the folks in Korea seem to be left out. And that is another story that really does, you know, it's not MASH, no, it's things like Hamburger Hill and and excuse me, Pork Chop pork Hill. Pork Chop Hill, same result.
1: Right, same result. We uh, had
0: done an interview uh, down in
2: Port Royal at the Amvet Club there, and we had wrapped it up, and I'm sitting at the bar talking to some of the guys having a beer. And this guy wanders over and he goes, "My name's Killer Kane, and I was in Korea. How come you're not interviewing me?" And I didn't have a good answer for him.
1: Well, you know, in S- it goes. It goes back. It goes back to the Forgotten War. That's what it's called. And we've got. We really do need to get to that, Jeff. If you don't run out of steam, we, we've got to start picking up the Korean War, because it was. It was so important for so many reasons. I mean, after this huge victory in 1945, where we were the only superpower on the face of the earth to the five years later when we end up in a stalemate in Korea. It's a huge story, and we need to tell it because so many of these men are now in their late 70s and 80s, because it was only five years, six years after the Second World War. But that, that probably should be our next project if you're up to it. Uh, I'm up to it.
2: Sure, let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, but we need names. Uh, we still need names of World War II veterans. Right. If you want to do Korea, give us names of Korean War veterans. Like I said, we have a Facebook page, but
0: we're still collecting names. Well, we will have a link on the journal website that people can can then link in to you folks. That'd be great. Well, you mentioned the AMVET club. The AMVET club, the American Legion clubs, those are disappearing. That's right. And, which would normally be a center of the veterans community. It's part of the changing nature of our society today. And they're not the only, you know, the old fraternal organizations are, are going by the, the moose
1: way. and the elk. Yeah. People um, aren't joining us like they used to be. No,
0: no. It's a different world. So, John, I asked Jeff his favorite interviewee, yours. Don't you sit down on this, these?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I told you about Mac Walters. I yeah. wasn't at Mac's interview, but he's one of my favorite stores. The interview with Max Wood was really over the top. We came, Ann and I went out there to his right, home. and my wife, Ann Rainey. And I went over to Max and, uh, and Sibby's house and Max had us down to his pool house and uh, Jeff came and brought his uh, camera lady with him.
2: Oh, Heidi Meltretter uh, did a lot of the shooting for us. Leanne Cornegay went to Holland with us, and she's uh, working on some side projects that I haven't told you about yet, John. And Wade Sellers is the director of the series, and Aaron Curtis is the production manager. She makes sure the trains
0: run on so, time. So you have, you have a crew of, what, six, eight show up at these folks' houses? No, no. It's it, it's me and, and a camera person. It'd be Wade
2: or Heidi or Leanne. and. We set up a couple of lights. We we don't we don't want to make them too nervous, mm-hmm. so we try to keep it a little bit low key.
1: But but Max, uh, Ann, and I were there, and uh, Heidi was there, and Jeff was there, and that was it. And Max got up on a stool, as I recall, drinking ham. So he got oiled up and and started telling his story. And he starts off in when he and another fellow decided to join the army in uh, is Michigan, I believe, and. Um, he ended up in Australia, and then he works his way up through New Guinea. And um, it's just he would stop every once in a while and say, now, you sure it's okay if I tell it like this? And we said, Max, just tell it like it was in your own language. And he did. And it, there were parts of it that were just really there were interesting things that, that we learned that never occurred to us. He said when he got to Japan— everybody was disarmed except the MPs. He said, we had to stack arms on the pier. And the only people, Americans that had any weapons there were the military police and the shore patrol and whatever, the APs and those, Air Force police. He said, uh, the whole country was completely disarmed and that included us. And, and that, that just sort of never occurred to me. He said, the whole time we went and occupied Japan, we had no weapons.
2: There was a good reason for that in many cases, and that these guys had been fighting for a long time. And I can't remember the gentleman's name, forgive me, but he said, you know, by the end of that fighting, we were animals. We were animals. And they wouldn't let us come home. He said, I had to stay on Okinawa for four months before they thought I was fit to go back into regular society. And he goes, you know what? They were right.
0: Well, the, the other thing, of course, is the propaganda that our country used to, to depict the Japanese. Even in children's cartoons, you know, the Bugs Bunnies and the Daffy Ducks, the, the Japanese person is depicted as either doing something evil or they're kind of cuckoo. But the whole, but the whole uh, effort of the war is you focused on the enemy and then all of a sudden you were there in their country. Didn't disarm in Germany though, did they? Soldiers weren't disarmed in Germany.
1: I just don't know that. I just I when, when Max told me that's first time I'd ever focused on that. But of course, it, it it made a lot of sense. You don't want a bunch of GIs running around with weapons, getting drunk, and having just come from the front, and because ugly things can can happen and, and do happen. You know, one one great story that we probably ought to try to get is Leon Goodall. Leon Goodall from Columbia is the retired chairman of Continental. Life and accident. I think, was his company. He just sold out to Affleck. Mm-hmm. Leon is probably 90 or 91 years old. And Leon told me this story when we were both on the Santee Cooper board together in the 90s. He came into to, um, Tokyo Bay on a ship as a young naval officer, and he said they had made the Japanese mark every place where there was a gun emplacement with white sheets. And he said... The hillsides were absolutely covered with sheets showing where their gun emplacements were. He said the place was
0: impregnable. Well, I can't believe it, Jeff and John, but Alfred's given me the sign that we've just got a couple of minutes. Any last things you like to any last words you'd like to share with our listeners before we sign off today, John?
1: Well, anybody that's listening that has a name, please send it to us. Uh, No matter who you think they are, what you think they may have done, uh, take a chance and give us the opportunity to contact them. You're probably going to find out you had a hero living with you or living next door to you and you never knew it because the heroes don't talk.
2: And once they're gone, these stories are gone forever. Now's the time to get them.
0: John Rainey, who is the co-executive producer of the Vanishing Generation series, and Jeff Wilkinson with the State Paper. Thanks for being with us today on The Journal.
1: Thank you Walter.
0: This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. South Carolinians in World War II is an incredible archive being created, not just for our present generation, but for future generations as well. The second installment of South Carolinians in World War II is entitled A New Front, and it will air on South Carolina ETV, fittingly on Memorial Day weekend, May the 26th. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at WEJ on ETV Radio. Listings of all our program guests and subjects, past, present, and upcoming, are at walteredgarsjournal.etvradio.org. Once you're there, you can subscribe to our weekly podcasts. Then you'll be able to download and hear Walter Edgar's Journal each week on your computer, iPod, or MP3 player. You'll find all this and more at walteredgarsjournal.etvradio.org. Next week on The Journal, I'll be talking with three individuals associated with the Peach Bush Book Club Project, an effort to record the memories of Marines who served with the 263rd Helicopter Detachment in Marble Mountain, Vietnam.
3: The second I turned the landing light on, there was the lead Cobra. We were so close that our blades meshed. I went down, he went up, and the blades didn't hit.
0: Join me for Walter Edgar's Journal each Friday at noon here on ETV Radio.